there are benefits to developing for the Mac as opposed to iOS. When I got started developing Mac apps as already being a iOS developer, it reminded me of the times I would develop on the machine I was developing for. As someone who's especially developed for the Apple Watch, it's sometimes difficult dealing with deployment and remote debugging. That was a big advantage with developing for the Mac itself. I was developing on the actual machine I was using. But I did start missing a few things. One of those, for instance, was the ability to erase a iPhone simulator and start with a brand new iPhone every single time. The ability to test different versions, if I needed to test on iOS 12 or 13 or 14 or 15, I could easily do that with the iOS simulator. When a user notifies me of a bug in a Mac app I've developed, I have no way of truly replicating their environment and trying to replicate the issue that they're having. There are a couple of instances where I've run into this. For instance, when I was developing Speculid and I had to do some parsing with the decimal points, I totally had forgotten the fact that different parts of the world use decimal points in different ways. And when a user contacted me from the Netherlands, I had no way of testing it at the time. That's where having a Mac simulator would have been helpful to be able to run for that specific environment. I've also had clients who've wanted me to create setup uh, scripts for developer environments. And I have no way of testing different scenarios, whether they might have Homebrew or Git or Xcode install, and being able to comfortably deal with those scenarios. I became really envious of what iOS Simulator can do, especially with the solid set of tools we get with SimCTL and some of the powerful dev tools that have been built on top of that, like Rocket Sim by Antoine Vanderly. Now, there are virtual machine apps I'm thinking in particular of VirtualBox and Parallels, but those apps aren't really targeted for Mac OS and for Mac developers like ourselves. I wanted something to have that Apple feel while being a powerful developer tool. So unfortunately for me, that meant having to create my own VM app. And that seemed like a huge undertaking. How would I even get started? Now, there had been a hypervisor framework that's been available for years, but it's a C-based API, and it really lacks any of the sort of swiftiness that I have grown accustomed to and am quite honestly comfortable with dealing with. Then 2020 came around, and Apple released the virtualization framework. The virtualization framework is a Swift API for creating and building macOS and Linux VMs all in Swift. They even provide a really great sample project that I highly recommend you check out where they go through and show how to set up a VM, how to set up the number of CPUs, the amount of memory, and how to install a particular version of macOS. So 
what would end up becoming the big challenge then is how do I take that sample code and integrate it with a sandboxed app using SwiftUI? Starting in the summer of 2022, I began work on what would end up becoming Bushel. How can I create an intuitive yet functional app for developers? The biggest challenge would end up being using SwiftUI and also keeping the app sandboxed while using virtualization. The virtualization framework uses what's called restore images to install the OS for a particular virtual machine. If you ever had to restore or update an iPhone in the old days, you'd have a button in iTunes called restore image that you would then select a particular IPSW file to update that iPhone for the beta. That's the same pattern that Apple follows with Apple Silicon Macs. So then you'd use these IPSW files to install a particular version of macOS on a virtual machine. I didn't want to use core data because I knew the writing on the wall that some update in Swift was going to happen at some point. So I ended up using a combination of user defaults and combine to store the records of different machines and restore images while supporting Monterey 12 and up. I knew this was going to be a big challenge moving forward, but I did learn some serious lessons along the way. Particularly, I had to learn to play nicely with the Sandbox. For those who don't know, a Sandbox Mac app puts restrictions on the app, essentially where the app has its own sandbox that it can do only certain things on the Mac. This would be a particular issue in the way Bushel can have access to certain files on the user's machine. I had to come up with a way that Bushel could easily get access to these restore images while being within the rules of sandboxing. I looked at other apps that dealt with large files and how they were able to keep collections of them. One in particular that came to my mind was Final Cut Pro and the idea of a library for videos and video edits and clips and things like that. And so I ended up creating a library structure, file structure, for the repository of images stored on the user's device. This would also make it easier to access the metadata of the restored images without having to load them every time. So like the OS version and the build number and things like that. A lot of these IPSW files could be anywhere between 12 to 15 gigs in size. And by creating this library and giving Bushel access to it, it ensured that it was just going to be a lot easier for Bushel to access and deal with. The one API that Apple gives us that's supposed to help with this is the document-based SwiftUI APIs. Those actually ended up being more of a hindrance than a benefit. I think the document-based stuff makes more sense when you're dealing with smaller files that you have complete control over. However, in my case, like I said, the IPSW files could be as big as 15 gigs. And then we also have the set of virtualization files that are required to have a machine up and running 
things like a machine identifier, the virtual machine disk files, things like this that I don't have complete control over and I need to just let virtualization have complete control over. So that ended up being a real challenge. On top of it all, I decided to support the oldest OS I could, and in that case, it was Monterey. Even though at the time, Ventura had just become available, this made it especially difficult because I didn't have access to all the latest window management APIs that come with macOS and SwiftUI. SwiftUI was always less of a priority for Apple when it came to macOS compared with iOS, obviously, or even watchOS. So the fact that I had chosen such an older OS was just making it even more difficult for me than it needed to be. So by the end of 2022, I honestly was just so busy with work (laughs) that I didn't have time to really keep deep diving into it. I was honestly just distracted by other things going on with work. And I figured by spring of 2023, it's probably worth me just waiting until DubDub. Surprisingly enough, there were some really good APIs that came out that year that really accelerated the pace of development when it came to Bushel. With WWDC, there's usually a few things I look for that can really give me a big benefit um, to building any app. And for me, I really hated the way I had set up the storage of what's called bookmark URLs or bookmark data. So the way sandboxing works is in order to keep access to files, you would store the bookmark data for the URLs that you need future access to. And I ended up doing this by cobbling together some weird codable user defaults combined mess that was honestly pretty hard to maintain and keep going. I didn't want to go with core data because, like I said, I was worried it was going to be updated soon, and I was right. So at WWDC 2023, we got Swift data, and this was what I needed. This was the thing that was going to help me with Bushel moving forward. Now, there's a lot of criticism about Swift data and some of the weirdness that comes with it. I think a lot of it comes from Swift macros too. But the fact of the matter is I knew that this was a long-term investment. I knew that I was willing to deal with those issues as opposed to trying to support an older OS. I wanted something that could grow with Bushel. And I also had come up with the the lesson that I had learned that it really wasn't worth it for me to continue to support Monterey. It was becoming more of a burden than it was worth. And I could get rid of a ton of code by switching over to the new APIs for window management when it comes to Swift UI. So I made the decision at WWDC that week that I was going to move Bushel forward to macOS Sonoma at the time. And to the first beta, it was just, I didn't even have to think about twice about it. That meant that over the summer, I made big migrations, big chunks of code that were rewritten. Yes, but just big chunks of code I didn't really need to maintain anymore. And that was a big deal. Like I said, Swift data, it's not perfect by any means. 
It's what I'd expect, honestly, from a first-year API from Apple. The biggest hurdle had become, as anyone who builds using beta software, is the changes that came with Swift Data every beta. So new attributes, new requirements, things like that. The other thing is, and I've talked about this before in previous episodes, is that with any new API, you come at it with preconceptions about how it should work. You think, this is the way that I've done database work, so therefore this is the way I would expect Swift Data to work. But I have to do it the way Apple has designed Swift Data. Some people may expect it to work like MySQL, Postgres, SQLite, but it's not like that. It's different. First of all, it's an ORM, right? It's not an actual, you're not directly writing to a database. And in my case, all my Swift database work in the last few years has all been in Fluent. For those who don't know, Fluent is the Swift database API that Vapor uses. So if you write a server-based Swift app, you would use Fluent to talk to MySQL, Postgres, etc., to both set up the database and also to query it. And that's what I was used to. I had done core data work, so it wasn't like I didn't know anything about core data. But there's just a lot of things that are very different between core data and Fluent and Swift data and Fluent. Additionally, there's weirdness with the way Swift macros works that I had to wrap my head around the way they do relationships, just as in the way I would think about it. There's a funny story where the night before WWDC, I had set up this like enum or struct called live preview. This was before I'd known that there was going to be a live preview macro. And then when I tried using that app and updating it, I had all sorts of issues <laughs> because I had already had a live preview thing set up. For me, like Swift Data, it just comes down to like long-term support. I want to be able to just work with something that Apple supports without having to pull in a third-party library. And I know it's going to be around for a while. So the one regret I think I would have is just the way threading works in Bushel and with Swift Data. There is this idea of a model actor but I have had a very difficult time finding good tutorials on it. I have a pretty good idea of what I want to do, but there just isn't a lot of tutorials out there for model actors, but hopefully that's something I'd like to employ in a version as soon as possible when it comes to Bushel, just to have a snappier API. So if you have any recommendations on that, please post in the comments below or just let me know on social media, because that's something I really want to want to take advantage of. The big updates that I made were just getting rid of a lot of the window management code. I had a lot of AppKit and URL hacks because that was the only way I could really open a new window or create a new window or focus a new window. And I was able to get rid of a ton of that code by switching over to Sonoma. And that was a big benefit. The thing I also got rid of really happy with was honestly using all the document-based APIs. I got rid of all document groups in the app. I use only window groups and that just made it a lot easier for me to deal with when it comes to, when it comes to 
saving and editing files. The document-based API just is not a good setup for virtual machines and restore libraries. And I'm pretty happy with it. There's a lot of things just I need control over. Dealing with customization when it comes to the open panel or the save panel from AppKit, improving the way session windows are run when you're opening a VM, handling window state. I could do that all through NS window delegates. So that was a big benefit that I was super happy with. And there's some code I'll share in the notes below that'll show how you can take advantage of some of that stuff as well. I'm sure there's blind spots. I'm sure I'm missing something that you get for free with document-based apps, but still I'm really happy with what we have in Bushel. So when it comes to sandboxing, I ended up storing those bookmark data in Swift data. I have like basically a bookmarks table for every URL. And then those are linked to the different machines and libraries. And then I have my snapshots and my images and things like that. So that was a big advantage. It just made it a lot easier to be able to access files. And that has worked out really successfully. I've had very few issues. When it comes to sandboxing in that case and being able to gain access to those files, one thing that did come out with WWDC, there are a few new APIs when it comes to virtualization that I wanted to take advantage of dealing with the display window and the new snapshot API. Before WWDC, I actually already had a snapshot API. I ended up using the NS file version stuff, which is commonly used with iCloud files. And that worked really well, actually. But if there's something new, I should definitely be taking advantage of that since I'm not supporting older OSs anyways. But there's a big problem with the new snapshot API in virtualization. It requires that the guest OS has to be Sonoma. That's a big problem. If my app is going to support people setting up brand new VMs with testing something on Monterey or Ventura, that's not usable. So that whole <laughs> new snapshot API was just completely useless to me. At some point, I'll probably support it somehow. But for now, I'm just sticking with the NS file version. It works really well. There's very little documentation about what's going on underneath the hood, unfortunately. But it works. The big issue is I can't tell how much disk space it takes up. When you create a new snapshot, that's just the nature of APFS. Unfortunately, I was looking forward to creating a pie chart that would show that, but that just unfortunately wasn't the case. Another issue I ran into was the fact that certain restore images just simply will not install on a VM. You might run into this with Bushel, but you get this weird DFU error that when I look into it, it kind of looks like something where Apple is saying, no, we don't want you to be able to use this image because of some security update is my guess. We have support documentation on that, which you can look at in the notes below. But basically, there are certain restore images that just you can't install. Apple just doesn't let you install. So that's something I ended up filing a feedback on it. So we'll see if that goes anywhere because... I want my users to be able to install whatever they want. So even if it is a bad image, I want you to be able to test with it. 
virtualization framework is all Objective-C based underneath the hood. And so in order to get a lot of the like changes to different states, I end up using some key value observers essentially to let an observable object know that there are certain changes. And that seems to be working pretty well. I'm pretty happy, honestly. So I'm a big fan of combine. I've always have been, but I I wanted to try something new and just see how well this new observation stuff would work. And honestly, like 99% of the stuff moved over to observation. Combine does have its drawbacks. It can be really complex and confusing to a lot of people. The testing can just become really overwrought and difficult to use. And the maintenance can become really challenging when it comes to Combine. I decided to pivot to observation and just see how far I can take it. There's some big benefits to that. It's natively supported with Swift data. It's simpler to track changes and updates. It's easier to separate the logic and properties out. And in most cases, I just end up using did set instead of doing the observation tracking because I just had a hard time getting that to work the way I think it should work. That seems to be working really well with updates. If I'm doing something wrong, let me know. But with observation tracking just doesn't work the way I expect it to work. I know it's confusing to a lot of people. I ended up using the window group, like I said, API. And then I have a really nice pattern set up to where whenever the binding changes on a window group view, it updates the observable object. And that has worked out really well. So that covers the new APIs that I use in Bushel. I want to talk a bit about some of the developer tools I use and maybe some things that could help you in the future as well. So now that I've talked about the new APIs that I use out of WWDC and how I integrated those, I want to get into the design of the app and also some of the common developer tools and automation stuff that I've done when it comes to Bushel. As far as the design for the app, I took a lot of inspiration from a few apps I'd like to mention. I mentioned Rocket Sim, which is essentially a power tool for iOS simulator. Pixelmator I use a lot, and Final Cut Pro, both are media apps, but they really use the Apple UI really well. And then, of course, Xcode and Simulator. I wanted to really focus the design of the app to be what developers are familiar with, but also what I think Apple would recognize as really good design patterns. There are virtual machine apps out there, but I really don't use them very much. And I try not to use them during the design of Bushel. I didn't use any of them. So I didn't use Parallels. I didn't use VirtualBox. I used Docker, but I wouldn't even count that because that's really more for server stuff. I didn't even get to use Virtual Buddy by Guy, which I really want to try (laughs) because it uses the same virtualization framework, but I never, I haven't even touched that app yet. So a lot of it was designed in a way is like just a blank slate of how would you design a really good VM app. The biggest restriction to the design of Bushel is dealing with sandboxing. Like I said, every file, you you need to go through some sort of file dialog in order to have access to it or its directory. And like I said, every all the bookmark data would have to be saved in a Swift data database. 
and sandboxing would also become an issue because I really wanted to use the micro apps architecture for the application. Micro apps, for those who don't know, is an architectural pattern where you'd create kind of separate apps for each part of a bigger application. In, in my case, I used Swift package for everything. There's really like one code file, formal code file in the Xcode project, which is the entry point. Otherwise, everything else is pretty much in the Swift package. The There's about seven parts to the application. There's dealing with the machines, the libraries, the hub market, which means like the app store, onboarding, settings, and welcome. And then I also separated parts that were either specialized Apple components or parts that are shared across the different sections of that. So for instance, machine would have its own Swift UI, a separate one called machines view machines data for the database stuff, any shared environment variables that would be used in a Swift UI environment variables, any specialized Apple components like store kit would have their own library. And then all the virtualization stuff was in its own library as well. So the virtualization implementation of a machine, the virtualization implementation of a library, etc. Part of that was the intention of at some point supporting other systems. This would, but also part of it was that I wanted to be able to build this on any OS. Even if it doesn't use all the code, I want to be able to build it on Linux or iOS. And just make sure that it can build and test in those environments as well, even though some parts of the application are exclusive to Mac OS. This meant that I ended up having 52 targets in my bushel Swift package. That doesn't even count the testing and the products. I ended up using Xcogen to create the app, micro app for each part. So like library, machine, settings, apps, all would be created through Xcogen, which I'll talk about in a bit. The real issue with micro apps ended up being with the sandboxing because the bookmark URLs that were used can't be usable in different apps. So if the machine app creates a bookmark URL for a specific mach like machine, then the library you are the library app can't use that same it'll just crash or throw an error because Bookmark URLs are tied to the app ID, regardless if you're using an app group. So unfortunately, I really couldn't go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> Microapps, though, ended up being just useful in keeping things separated. It made testing easier. It made management easier. It just made it easier to change and plug certain things in. I like my files small. I like my type small. I like my functions small. I like my target small. Just I prefer many small pieces as opposed to one big, large monolith. <laughs> that did become an issue, of course, when it came to the package.swift file because it came really hard for me to manage that. So I ended up creating my own language for that. I was inspired by the work of Josh Holtz and his deck UI library to create a Swift UI like DSL for Swift packages. And this would end up becoming the origin of what I like to call a package DSL or package DSL library. This allows for individual files per targets or dependency. 
ensuring small files, which is what I like. It removes a lot of boilerplate code. It encourages best practices for pack Swift packages. And it has a really easy to understand organization for targets. When you have your targets, a lot of targets that are not, they're separated out and small. It just means you have an improved build speed, just better separation and concerns, better testing, easier to maintain structure. And I have been going, I think all of my new apps are going to end up using this structure. I think there's a certain number of targets or products where it doesn't become worthwhile, but for any app that I'm going to build, I'm going to be using this going forward because I'm just going to start using a lot of targets in my application. It just involves some support Swift code and a bash script that concatenates all the files together. And that's pretty much it. It works really well for me and I'll probably be using it in all my future apps going forward. For logging, I also developed my own library. It's a really small library I called Feline Pine. I call it that because it's a cataloging log. It's catalog. So cats are felines and log pine. It works. It just allows me to say a certain type or even a certain protocol has a particular category attached to it for logging, and then it creates a logger on that type. So for instance, with a view, every view is tied to the view category. If I want a particular type to be tied to like virtual machine category, I can do that. And I just, it has access to that logger everywhere throughout the application. And that's worked out really well. I'll be using that in all my future apps as well. And that's like the only outside library I really use in Bushel. So Everything else is built within Bushel, no other third-party libraries. If you watched the last episode, I used Murray with Bushel. The issue becomes that when I create a new file in Xcode for all my for any of my stuff, it's going to be in a Swift package. Creating a new file with in a Swift package in Xcode is a mess. It doesn't really do a good job. So I wanted a way to have a template. And a way in that in the template, I can specify how I want it to look for every bushel file, like say a Swift UI view, and I can just use the command line to create that file. And that's really what Murray does. Murray's fantastic. I used it to create new targets. So I'll create a new target file, which would then automatically work with my package DSL. And then I create a new view. It knows exactly what folder to put that view in what module to put it in. It just works so well. I highly recommend taking a look at Murray for creating new files. It works awesomely for Bushel, and I will keep using that in my future projects as well. You probably heard me talk about Xcogen a lot, and it worked really well. It was the glue that got the Swift package and the product all to work together along with package DSL. And it was really fantastic. I could automate stuff with my CI if I need a bump, the build number. I could change the text. I could mark something as not beta. It was just really easy for me to do all that through this YAML file. I don't commit my Xcode projects to the repo. And that makes it a lot easier to maintain this application. I use GitLab for my code hosting. I do that with all my private repos and I use their CI system. I bought a Mac mini a few years ago. 
Apple Silicon Mac Mini and have integrated that with my CI, and that's worked out really well. I don't have to worry about Mac OS versions or any of that stuff. I have some linting that I do for every PR so I can make sure that the PR is ready to go and is of the certain quality that I want it. I can do testing on Linux Docker machines, which are a lot faster, and that works really well without having to take up time on my Mac OS. I just like doing having my code to be able to run anywhere, even if it doesn't work. I want to be able to test it on Linux or iOS. This became an issue when there were betas, and I didn't want to put a beta OS on my Mac Mini, for instance. So I would run the tests in the iOS simulator. So that would mean that there were certain stuff I didn't have access to, certainly, like virtualization. But most of my business logic wasn't using any of these specialized Apple APIs. If you watched my episode with Brandon from Point Free, you know the importance of making dependencies easily mockable. Um, and I do this a lot with Bushel. I want to be able to test this app on Linux or iPhone simulator, even though it might not work in those cases, just to make it more versatile and easier to not worry about having to access a Mac OS machine every single time. And that was a big help with the application. And it's definitely a pattern that I continue to follow as I'm going forward. Part of what I like about GitLab CI is how easily pluggable it is and agnostic. And part of that is taking advantage of tools like Fastlane, which made it really easy to work with and deploy the app to test flight and to the app store automatically when a build succeeds at no point none of the betas none of the app store versions are manually archived and uploaded to the app store they're all done automatically through gitlab ci and fastlane i use match for all the certificate management so i don't use automatic certificates i use one that's built through match and then i use xcode gen to tie the certificate to the Xcode project and to the app. And that's done all automatically. It works really well with Xcode Gen. And I use a little command line tool called YQ, which is kind of like JQ for manipulating JSON, but this is YQ for manipulating YAML. I can then use that to update the project.yaml file with a new build number and with any new metadata, like marking something as not beta or something like that. And that's worked really well. That covers the automation piece. I think automation is super important. It just allows me to free my mind from dealing with certificates or archiving or uploading or all the little manual things that you have to do when you're working with the code base. It just became faster and easier for me to just go in and fix certain pieces easily. That's great. But if nobody knows about Bushel, this is all useless. And so let's talk about the marketing side. One of the first things you should do when you have a new app idea is create an email list somehow before you even, okay, you should first make sure that your idea works, but that shouldn't take too long. Next, you should create the email list. In my case, I didn't want to continue using my MailChimp list because that can get really, I have a limit to it because I'm on the free tier. And so I ended up using Formspree, and I really like Formspree. It's just super simple to use and get set up. And I used that until I was 
confident enough with the beta builds that I just went with the automatic sign up for test flight beta. And that works really well. As far as building the site, um, I ended up going with a static site generator called Elevendy. It is node based and I really love it. It's super simple and expandable and easy to use. I wouldn't use it for the Bright Digit site. I'm really happy with the published setup that I have for Bright Digit. But for a super simple site where I don't really have like a blog or anything, it works really well and I'm very happy with it. I set up a Slack for beta testers to communicate with me and to let me know if they run into any issues. And just having that like constant communication was very helpful. Okay, so let's talk about the thing of the year. ChatGPT, did I use it? Yes and no. So, code help. It's not that great. It's okay. If you have a simple algorithm you want it to follow or that's easily expandable or generic and something that's not particularly Apple-specific, it's fine. It just really falls short for anything that's niche within Apple or something that gets updated a lot over the years. Like I said, I was trying to look for a really nice way to get the disk size of a directory in Swift, and it gave me some really okay examples, but there were just some hallucinogenic properties that didn't exist. It didn't even matter because, like I said, the calculations for an NS file version are way off because of the way APFS works. If you have something that's like formulaic in input or output, like for instance, I want to turn something into a view modifier, it could do that really easily. For like the machine state where I wanted to display an uh, SF symbol, it was able to do that really well. It was like, okay, like we know that there's a play symbol. And we could do that. There was some stuff with converting text into the proper strings dictionary format for localization. It was able to do that really well. If it's common enough that there would be documentation on, say, Stack Overflow or Apple's website, it does okay. It does okay. What I found it really helpful for was, honestly, in any sort of copywriting. Not perfect, but really helpful and a really good starting point. When you're developing an app... You're in that app all the time. It is like what you swim through. And coming up with the right words to explain something that you think about all the time is really challenging. It's like trying to tell a fish to explain and describe water. It's just really hard for a fish to do. Well, fish aren't that smart, but you get my point, right? Bushel gave me the ability to concisely explain something of what I'm trying to communicate to another user. It may hallucinate like features that don't exist or certain answers, but I have the ability to redo my prompts or to clarify with further questions or ask for more answers or examples if I don't like the one that it gave me. And the power of that is that it ends up creating a really lengthy dialogue with ChatGPT. And through that dialogue, ChatGPT learns more about Bushel, and it gets better at giving me the text that I request. It kind of learns along the way. I have this real... If you go to my ChatGPT and you look at the Bushel file on it, it's getting really massive. Because I've continued on that dialogue and on that conversation, I think it helps with the model to learn better. 
I will continue to be using ChatGPT for application copy, marketing material, any sort of metadata, app store requirements. It's been a big help for me as a developer because, like I said, context switching from being a developer to a copywriter can be really difficult. One thing I did ask ChatGPT, interestingly enough, is what kind of future features should I have in Bushel? And gave me some interesting suggestions. But I do already have some ideas of what I want to do in the next version of Bushel and some new features that I want to do. My hope is that this is a solid foundation to build those features upon with 1.0. Besides fixing bugs, which are going to happen, here's some of the features that I'm looking at doing. One is a separate command line tool. So I want an easy way that somebody can go into the terminal and create a new virtual machine or import a new restore image or create a new snapshot easily just through the command line. I'm not sure I could do something like running an actual virtual machine and showing the window because the window needs Swift UI. But I think that's a really useful command line tool for a lot of people. Part of that too will involve maybe partially open sourcing sections of the application, the more generic parts of the app or anything doing with the command line tool. Part of that too is encouraging other developers to build extensions on top of Bushel. We did that episode with Matt about extension kit and I definitely, that piqued my interest with Bushel. And I think if it offers developers a really great opportunity to extend Bushel in any way they want, that would be great. That would also encourage more integrations. I, like I said, I built the virtual machine system generic enough that we can integrate other stuff like maybe Docker or Linux VMs. The work that the Silicon and TART teams are is really interesting, and I want to be able to integrate with those as well. And then encouraging the use of other hubs, as I like to call them, such as IPSWME, which has a great collection of restore images as well. The other thing I want to look at is making Bushel into some sort of service, make it more, more like a launch service. So looking at XPC, how would that work really well? How would that improve Bushel setting up a vapor server so you can call Bushel remotely? through an iPhone or through another device. If you want to run Bushel on another device, you can do that. I want to look at background tasks because there's a lot of stuff like keeping track of when you move a file or delete a file or things like that. I want to be able to do that easily. And of course, a menu app, being able to push Bushel into the menu, I think would be useful for a lot of people who just want to be able to run a VM without having to open the Bushel app from the dock. There's a lot of UI stuff I want to do. There's a lot of stuff I just did not have time to design when it came to the thing like the library or the machine. I want to be able to update that and just use whatever feedback that I get from folks as well. I'm inspired, like I said, by Rocket Sim. So stuff like screenshots, videos, something with like SharePlay or something where you can like share a screen easily of a VM would be really cool too. And then lastly is creating a non-sandboxed app for a VM, something like a Bushel guest tools that would give you the host access to the VM without having to go into the VM 
be able to do things like SSH or to be able to enable certain features, things like that, that an admin would want to do on a VM, essentially, and give Bushel direct access to that without going to the VM itself. So yeah, big plans. We'll see. I think my, what is it? My eyes are bigger than my stomach. Yeah, we'll see how much I can get done in 2024. Lastly, I want to thank you all for watching this episode. This has been a great year for me, and it's been a fun experience building Bushel over the year. I hope you've enjoyed the episodes this year. Without your support, I don't think I can make this app a reality, honestly. It's been amazing. I want to thank all the beta testers as well for giving me really valuable feedback. And yeah, I'm just, it's amazing that this thing is out. I'm really happy about it. If you have any time, please post a review of the podcast and subscribe if you're watching this video. I'd really appreciate it. You don't know how much it means to me when you do that. And more so, become a member of the Patreon. It's been a huge success. Please take some time, join the Patreon, and get early access to episodes if you want to just learn about the process of making these episodes. I'm hoping to do more videos, more articles next year, so we'll see about that. Thank you so much. I hope you have a wonderful holiday, and I will see you all in 2024. Thank you. Have a good one.